there was a study that was published in Scientific American, and uh, it'll seem obvious to you, but what do you think is the number one topic, by a large margin actually, that people most talk about? Any ideas? In terms of a topic of conversation. Wrong. Wrong. Themselves. Very good. Oh, is that Sheldon? No, no, but you're here. (laughs) I am looking at Sheldon. Oh, good to see you, brother. Yes, themselves. And if, if you are like most people, your hands down favorite topic in conversations is you. (laughs) <laughs> and on average, it said in this study that people spend 60% of conversations talking about themselves, and the figure jumps to 80% when we're communicating on social platforms. Um, scientifically speaking, it, it turns out it, it makes some sense. There was these researchers from Harvard who showed that when we talk about ourselves, it, it lights up these parts in our brain associated with um, comfort food, like uh, pizza and mac and cheese and fried chicken. And so the same part of our brain that lights up from talking about ourselves is the same part of our brain that lights up after taking a hit of cocaine. Uh, I mean, we have a whole form of pictures called selfies, right? I'm old enough to remember when, for the most part, you didn't take pictures of yourself. You couldn't logistically take pictures of yourself. It was, it was very difficult. And the culture, let's be honest, celebrates the self-made man, the self-made woman, um, the virtue of looking out for number one, uh, whatever makes you happy, right? I'm taking a little me time. And, and whatever permeates the culture is bound to influence the church at at some point. That's why I have conversations like this with Christians all the time. Like, how's it going finding a church? Oh man, I have been to seven different churches and uh, since we moved here, like we've been church shopping for almost two months now, but we can't find anything that seems to work for us. We like the worship at one church, but the teaching wasn't deep enough. And then um, at this other church, we loved the teaching, but the kids' ministry was really lame. And, uh, and then we tried this one church that we, we thought might be cool, but um, no one talked to us the whole time that we were there. And then they'll inevitably finish with this old chestnut that kind of breaks my heart every time. We just can't find a church that meets our needs. Our needs. Now, look, I don't want to sound critical. I don't want to sound unrealistic because, frankly, there are different churches with different cultures, different chemistry, um, different priorities and programs, and that's a good thing. Frankly, uh, you know, I was on a bit of a, a church shopping expedition myself three years ago, and it was important to me that NAC lined up with my priorities and some of my preferences before I came here. I also know NAC ain't going to be everybody's cup of tea, and, and I'm actually really okay with that. It's the beauty of of the big C church, you know, even here in Newmarket, there is uh, enough churches with different flavors that everybody can find 
something that, that is, a, is a good fit for them. Uh, I want everyone to find a, a church that feels like a good fit. But the language of this conversation is a little troubling, isn't it? We're church shopping, like we're going out to get a pair of khakis, you know? The phrase, I can't find a church that meets my needs, has got to be one of the most unbiblical statements in Christendom. Um, It says that we see ourselves sort of as spiritual consumers, and the product is, is church. So before long, that kind of mindset is, is just bound to creep into our theology, isn't it? Well, since I'm going to church and doing good things, then God should answer my prayers. God should get me that job I want. Help the Leafs win the cup, you know? Uh, I, I've done my part. And if any of this doesn't happen the way I want it, then God has failed me somehow. Because remember... Everything's all about me, right? We forget that we are not made to be spiritual consumers. God has called us to be spiritual contributors. And the church does not exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. And it's part of this counterintuitive kingdom that Jesus said has come and is, is coming in fullness one day, it's this upside-down worldview, you know, the, the kind that says to actually pray for your enemy. Uh, a kingdom that says when you're struck, to turn the other cheek, you know, that those who want to be first in the world should actually become the last. To become truly rich you should become radically generous, you know? That to gain life, you actually need to lose it. Um, that real joy doesn't come through sort of hedonistic self-interest, but in one anothering. That if you want to be great, you need to learn to be a servant. Counterintuitive, upside down. And we're spending all of this fall looking at the one another's of scripture, 59 verses, as far as I can tell, that say something one another, love one another, encourage one another, teach one another. Um, Galatians 5.13 says, y'all are free. Uh, You're not chained to sin anymore. You're not in the old life. So use your freedom to serve one another. Romans says to honor one another above yourself. Um, Philippians says to consider others better than yourself. Consider one another better. Uh, Peter says to use your gift to serve one another. Um, He goes on to say that we are to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. That uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians to seek to do good for one another. Look how Jesus measured greatness, okay? He measured it in terms of service, not status. Think about that. God measures greatness by how many people we serve, not how many people serve you. And once again, that's not how the culture 
measures greatness. It's how we're supposed to. 2,000 years ago, the disciples argued over um, who deserved the more prominent position. And 2,000 years later, Christian leaders and pastors still can jockey for position and prominence and and status. It's the human condition, I suppose. We'd rather be generals than privates. You take a look at Amazon sometime and just type in leadership or Christian leadership. Do you have any idea how many books will come up? Like more than you could read in a lifetime. Look at my office bookshelf sometime and see how many books there are on leadership. Now, try to find books written on servanthood. There's not many to be found, not many in my own personal library. And so today I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask myself to consider making a a radical countercultural mindset shift. In fact, instead of just sometimes doing good things in God's name to help other people, you know, instead of volunteering, instead of seeing service as something that you occasionally do, what if you saw yourself, your identity as servant, servant of all, not as something you do, but as something that you are? Um, It's that same kind of mindset wherein, you know, we remind ourselves that, that we don't come to church. We are the church. That's a bell I keep ringing every week. And since we are the church, God wants to use us to serve him by serving each other, serving Jesus by serving each other. He wants us to use our gifts to strengthen his body, the church. The church is the only organization that Jesus Christ found. Jesus Christ loves the church like a groom loves a bride. I was reminded of that yesterday as we watched this wedding and that the picture of, of Jesus just, well, the word was, he used the word captivated. Jesus is captivated by his bride, the church. And Jesus loves it when new churches are planted. Jesus loves it when old churches get new life. Jesus love it, uh, loves it when, when churches reach lost people. Jesus loves it when churches help hurting people. Jesus loves it when children are born in the church and then grow up to be born again members of the church. Jesus loves it when uh, churches raise up young leaders. Um, Jesus loves it when the church sends out gifted missionaries. I think Jesus is grieved when people use the church or disparage the church or abandon the church or attack the church. We, we need to love the church. We need to serve the church, uh, give to the church, pray for the church, because Jesus does all those things and modeled all those things. And so Jesus, by his spirit, imparts to the church, to all of us, to everybody sitting in this room, spiritual gifts. Paul tells the, the, the Roman Christians, in his grace... God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. There are certain things that just come naturally and easy to you. You're wired to do things that other people can't do. They marvel at you, how you do it so well. 
That's a gift from Jesus to benefit, you guessed it, one another, to benefit the church. So what does it look like for us to become a servant? Not just volunteer, not just serve every now and then, uh, not someone who does it occasionally, but whose identity is that of, of a Christ follower who is a servant. Well, here's some things I've noticed. This isn't by any means an exhaustive list, but I've noticed servants are available. Um, I, I don't mean that they're waiting by the phone 24-7 with no personal boundaries. I mean they have a, um, a disposition. They have a mindset of availability. I remember this true story that a pastor told um, after one of his sermons on surrender or, or something like that. A man walked up to him as he was saying goodbye to people. And the young guy just shook the pastor's hand and said, pastor, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? And the pastor was kind of confused. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, what... He says, Pastor, I want you to know my answer to you is yes. Whatever you need, anywhere, anytime, my answer is yes. Now, what's the question? What is your answer? What is your answer to Jesus? I don't mean your answer to Pastor Jonathan. What is your answer to Jesus? Has it been maybe if I have time? Or has it been an unconditional yes? don't even know the question yet, but you have a mindset of, yes, Lord, wherever, whenever, however, yes. Here's what else I've noticed, that servants pay attention to the needs out there. They're aware. Um, they're always on the lookout, it seems, for people who, who need help. And when they see a need, they seize on it. The Bible says this in, in Galatians 6.10. I like this translation. Whenever we have the opportunity, we have to do what is good for everyone, especially for the family of believers. See, when God puts someone in need in front of you, he's giving you an opportunity, isn't he? Um, when an occasion comes up to serve one another, um, you actually may be getting an opportunity to become more Christ-like, uh, become more like Jesus in his model of servanthood. You know, notice God says that the needs of your church family are actually given preference, not, not, not put at the bottom of, of things I, want, you know, I can get to if I have time. Servants don't say, yeah, one of these days or when the time is right, um, I like how the Bible actually says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Ecclesiastes says, God expects you to do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. And less than perfect service is always, always better than best intentions. Here's, here's what else I've noticed. Servants serve with all their heart. That's from Colossians. It's really a motive question, isn't it? You know, if I said the name um, Leonard Bernstein, would anybody know who I was talking about? Leonard Bernstein, a conductor, a famous conductor, celebrated orchestra, orchestra conductor. And uh, he, he was once asked, what's the hardest instrument to play? 
And without a moment's hesitation, he said, second fiddle. Um, I can always get plenty of first violinists, he says. But to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. See, this is the thing about people who have a heart for servanthood. People who serve as though they're serving unto God. Uh, Have you noticed there's no such thing as a menial task to a servant? There's no no role that is beneath them. You notice Jesus kind of specialized in menial tasks, like hanging out with children when everybody else wanted to dismiss them, fixing breakfast, serving lepers, washing feet. We watched the scripture version of that where Jesus takes the lowliest job of a, of a servant, takes off his, is that Shirley? Shirley, good to see you. How are you feeling? Ah, uh, we missed you. Let's, let's give Shirley just a round of applause. Quit throwing me off, off course here, though, okay? So good to see you. Um, I, I, th- I think of Jesus who, who takes this dirty job, ties a towel around his waist, um, takes off his outer garment because I'm sure it gets messy and wet and gross, and he gets right up close to those stinky, blistery, bunion-filled Corns, athlete's foot, claw toe, planter warts, gout, fungal nail infection, and he washes their feet. And I I don't know if, if some of those poor rural fishermen had ever experienced that kind of, of high-class hospitality, and they got it from the one that they called Lord and Master. And this is what Jesus said. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Nothing was beneath him because he came to serve. And listen, it wasn't in spite of his greatness that he did these things. It was actually because of it. And he expects us to follow that example. Now, we may have to culturally extrapolate what it means to wash someone's feet in the 21st century. But I I think we can agree that it's going to be likely something that's humbling and and thankless and what maybe the culture would call menial. Can I just say, pastors, elders, um, marketplace leaders, um, those with six-figure salary, seven-figure net worth, uh, you will never arrive at a place in your life where you're too important to wash feet, okay? Here's what Rick Warren says. God will never exempt you from the mundane. It's a vital part of your character curriculum. And the Bible says if you think you're too important to help someone need, you're only fooling yourself. I I think the true test of your character as a servant will be when someone actually treats you like one.
right? Wouldn't it be interesting if we actually, if we put up two signs in our, on our front door um, coming in, uh, our, our maintenance uh, or building manager, Steve, is here, so maybe we'll talk about this after. One will be called the guest entrance, right? And it'll be all f- for our visitors and for seekers and for, for guests, those who, who aren't sure about this whole church thing. And, and I just want to say again, we want you here. We're glad you're here. You're not being recruited into anything or tricked into anything, I assure you. Uh, we actually don't want anything from you. We actually just want to give you something. We want to give you some good news. Um, but if so, we have this guest entrance. What if we also had the servant entrance? Remember those old shows, you know, about the Downton Abbey and, and those, those servant entrance type shows? And our servant entrance would be for anyone who would be calling themselves followers of Christ and part of the New Market Alliance family. And if anyone is sort of bristling at the idea of of going through the servant's entrance or being called a servant, I just encourage you to just wrestle with that a bit. Why does that make you uncomfortable? What does that stir up in you? This is the stuff, you know, to serve or not to serve, to humble ourselves or not, in where we can either grow like Christ or miss an opportunity to grow like Christ. I'll tell you one more thing I've noticed about a, a true servant's heart. They actually seem to do, do it with joy. Uh, that's the part I need to work on. I, I'm, I'm going to make a little guess here. Um, about Glenn and Jessica and Jeff Robinson, just from what I know about them. Great athletes, all of them. And I'll bet that while they're watching sports, either in person or on TV, that, that while that may be enjoyable on some level, it's always a bit unsatisfactory to them because more than anything, they'd rather be out on the field is that true? Yeah, I thought so. Um, the world has a lot of spectators. The church has a lot of spectators, a few participants. And so it's so much better, so much better to participate. Ah, oh, put me in, coach. Okay, I'll, I'll put you in right field where the ball doesn't come very often. And I've asked the center fielder to sort of cover your area. But um, that's okay. I'd rather be in the game than watch. And so that's just what the Robinson kids, I can't call them kids anymore. Uh, they, they are your kids, Steve and Linda. That's what the Robinson kids have done in every church that they've attended. Probably because they've witnessed their parents do it their whole life. They're like, put me in, coach. Wherever I can help, wherever I can be of service, I don't think they could picture being part of a church where they're not serving in some way. I talked about this last week, at least at one point, um, how our church has a very high percentage of people who serve. Like, you know, in most churches, there's this 80-20 rule 
where 20% of the congregation does like 80% of the giving, of the serving, of the engagement. And, uh, and, and thankfully, we, we are more like 80% doing 80%, which is about where it should be. And listen, here's the danger, though. As, as the church perhaps grows, um, as maybe paid staff takes on more roles, as there's a perception of church health even, um, there's this well-established principle of social psychology that starts to happen. You know, it's called the bystander effect. You've heard of this? Where people are less likely to act or volunteer because the assumption is, is that others will, right? So often as a church grows, so does the likelihood that people just become spectators. And, and may that not become our story. You know, you can retire from your vocation. You can't retire from being a servant of the Lord, a servant of one another. You just can't. But, but getting back to joy for a second, look, you may be here, you may be watching this uh, at, at home right now. You may be skeptical of faith. You may be skeptical of the Bible or of me. But I challenge you actually to do just a little research on this, on what the social sciences, on what psychology, what those who study happiness are finding, especially in the midst of COVID, where there's been just an unprecedented rise in depression and anxiety and isolation and fear and anger. There's an answer that is uh, coming out of these secular sciences um, is that uh, to confront these issues in a healthy way, to actually find joy, is to serve others. They're finding it, it, it gets your eyes off your own problems, it gets your eyes off self, um, that you will get a deep intrinsic satisfaction through serving others. This is, these are not Christian um, ideas that are emerging. And of course, I would, I would argue that these were actually biblical principles that the world is finally catching up to. You know, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, there's a guy who's in a concentration camp who found that joy could be found not by pursuing joy itself, but by giving one's life to a cause greater than yourself. It's a, it's a byproduct of serving others instead of yourself. There's this great theologian, J.I. Packer, and here's how he put it. He said, to seek pleasure, comfort, and happiness is to guarantee that you will miss them all. The seeds of happiness, it has been truly said, grow most strongly in the soil of service. You know, um, there's different scriptures that infer that no matter how big or small we are as a church, if we are healthy and if we are spirit-filled and if we are, if we are listening to God, we actually don't lack anything. Whether we're a church of 150 or a church of 50 or a church of 5,000, we have everything we need in Christ. 
and, and represented by the people. Now, I know we don't have our full congregation here, not by a, a long shot. We probably have, you know, 20%. Um, but just as a little experiment, uh, would, you just, would you just play along with me for a little illustration here before we close? And uh, feel free to play along on Facebook or YouTube with a, with a hand emoji or something like that. Please do not raise your hand if you cannot, should not, uh, would not answer in the affirmative, okay? But let's say I told you there were some elderly people who had some minor repairs in their home, okay? It'll take some tools. It may take a trip to Home Depot. It may take three to four hours. Raise your hand if you have the expertise or the motivation to do something like that. Right on. Now, I'm modeling raising my hand, but I can't actually do that. <laughs> but that's, that's awesome. Okay, let's say there's somebody in Newmarket who needed a ride to church every week. Who would honestly raise their hand and say, I'd be part of a team that did that? Amazing. Okay. What if there was a single mom who is in desperate need for a, a night out? Is there anybody here who would babysit her kids for a night? Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, what if we found out a family, for, for whatever reason, needed a week's worth of dinners? Who would be willing to do that? Love it. Thank you. Okay, these are going to get harder. What if someone here desperately needed a car for like two months? Who would have the means and, and motivation to lend them one? Wow, right on, right on. What if someone in our church needed $800 or they were going to get evicted from their home? Who could afford to give them that? No strings attached. Love it. God bless you. Wow. This is the Acts 2 church, folks, where all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their possessions and their goods and they shared with anyone who was in need. Thank you for participating with me on that. I'll invite the team to come up, but that's what it means to be the church, okay? You know, you know what words I'm most looking forward to in my life? The day many of you are looking forward to if you are a Christ follower. There's going to come a day when you will look at Jesus uh, face to face, eye to eye, and I suspect his glory and his beauty is just going to be too amazing to comprehend. And so you may have to avert your gaze. You may, you may even look down. And now I'm totally speculating here, but maybe he will, he will lift your chin and just address you lovingly and tenderly and personally. And the Lord will say something like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's, that's the day I'm looking forward to. I hope he says those words to me. I want to pray this over us before we respond. Wherever you go... God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there 
God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ who indwells you by the power of his spirit wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, his power. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wherever you go, God is sending you to be available. Wherever you are, God has put you there to be available. God has a purpose in you being right where you are so that you can be available. Amen.